we're going to be talking about lifestyle. We're going to continue our uh, service this morning um, talking about temples, but one temple in particular. And if you open up your uh, outlines, which should be inserted in your bulletin, we've got a first blank to fill in. And uh, I love blanks. Um, I'm actually diagnosed ADHD, so um, I love paying attention to many, many things all at the same time. And uh, blanks help me sort of focus. So um, if you're like me, they can help you too. So temples are built to, first blank is inspire. Temples are built to inspire. Why? By their size, by their grandeur, by their transcendence. It's a nice word that means a sense that you're having a connection to a realm that's outside of our own. That there is this connection to another plane or a spiritual reality that we can just get a taste of. That actually architecture has the ability to translate the human spirit into a different kind of awareness. I'm not talking about mystically losing yourself. I'm talking about how impressive it is to stand in places that are designed to inspire worship. So uh, the first place that I wanted to take us uh, is to the temple in Jerusalem that doesn't exist. That's a model. Um, but you can see it's try they're trying to make it to scale. You can see maybe those little people there in the courtyard. Uh, of course, the temple in Jerusalem uh, was built uh, maybe about a thousand years before Christ. Then it was destroyed 500 years uh, after it was built. Then it was rebuilt. Uh, in the time of Jesus, it still wasn't yet completed. Uh, they completed that second temple known as Herod's temple uh, maybe two or three years before Titus and the Romans came in and destro destroyed it again. Uh, once and for all. Now, of course, the Dome of the Rock sits there. Um, but here, this is all by design. So God talked about how he wanted the place in which he was going to be worshipped, the focal point on the planet for the worship of the one true God. And he had talked about how he wanted it to be and how he wanted it to look both outside and inside, ornate, expensive, Lots and lots of gold and bronze and custom-made everything. Uh, tapestries that were very, very intricate um, all over the interior. Um, and so unfortunately, we, we don't have anything beyond what was written in Scripture about the description of the inside of this temple. But again, it was designed to inspire. Um, you can see from these little figures that doorways are not normal size, right? <laughs> These doorways are ginormous, and the arches are ginormous. Everything is huge. Temples are built to inspire. And of course, temples were not just in Jerusalem. They were all over the ancient world. This is from the Roman era. It's uh, in France, uh, one of the best preserved Roman era temples uh, that we have, as far as all still together, original, intact. And this is how many of the temples in the ancient Roman world would have looked. Uh, that they had a main sanctuary that you would walk into. And again, we've got um, probably an eight or nine-year-old child and then an adult just hiding behind the pillar there to give you, again, a sense of the size of this place, this temple. Now, this isn't a temple 
This is in the Roman Forum, and uh, but you can see the tourists there. This is actually one of the remains of the public baths that were there uh, in the Forum. But again, just the size and scale is designed to really help the individual realize I'm kind of just a small piece of a very bigger picture. Um, this is the Vatican, and Michelangelo was the one who successfully designed the dome. Um, and you know you've really made it when you only need one name, right? And everybody knows who you are. Michelangelo, Prince, right? <laughs> Just kidding. All right. About the Prince part. The Vatican, though, when you go inside the Vatican, you, you understand why this spawned the fracturing of Christendom all over the European continent. Uh, the opulence inside and the sale of indulgences, among other things, and the wars, the papal wars that were done. Um, this is one of the antechambers inside the Vatican. Like, this is just sort of like a little vestibule, um, maybe equivalent to our coat room. <laughs> uh, and there's many of these little vestibules. This is not the main one. Um, and I, I took this picture just because I, I, this shows you a little bit about the opulence that the Roman temples would have had in them. Of course, when the Roman Empire collapsed after it had been sacked by Visigoths and Vandals, um, all of these kinds of trappings were, were really uh, stripped out of most of the Roman temples. Uh, and what wasn't ended up at the Vatican. The Vatican just, you know, anytime they'd be unearthing uh, things around uh, ancient Rome, and it was beautiful, like a statue or a mosaic, um, it would get shipped off to the Vatican. So it's an incredible place to go, not just because of its spiritual uh, or religious significance, it's also incredible for its historical and ar archaeological value as well, as well as the architecture. Uh, of course, the Sistine Chapel is uh, connected to that as well. So if you do have a bucket list, I would put the Vatican on it. Um, this is a picture of kind of the central area, and I don't know what they call this, but it's made out of bronze, and I think there's a, a vault in the crypt underneath it. Um, people here probably, some of you might know what this is called. I, I can't remember what it is. But this is typically where a lot of the center points of the religious ceremonies happen. You can kind of see it's right underneath this dome that's there. And um, maybe you can get a sense of the scale. This is the main hallway in the Vatican um, in uh, St. Peter's. And then I just wanted to include this because this is that same bronze canopy, just to give you a sense of the scale and the size. And those are all, of course, little people, and there you see the um, special guard, uh, whose name is escaping me right now, that uh, stands guard over the Pope. Um, and so this is, this is a, an absolutely incredible space to be in. Uh, when you're in this space, you realize God is really big, <laughs> and the people budget was really big, and uh, people could do amazing things when they put their minds to it. And, of course, we can argue about, you know, the power that the Pope was trying to project through a space that's this large, but we can also back up 
and, and realized that all of this was meant to try to capture just a sliver of that otherworldliness that is heaven. This sense that when we come together in the name of God, that the space in which his name is associated with should have some sense of grandeur. It should have some sense of transcendence. Um, this is in Florence. This is the uh, principal church called the Duomo. Um, beautiful place. And on the inside of this dome is painted a whole bunch of uh, scenes, biblical scenes, of course, for illiterate uh, peasants uh, in the Middle Ages. And it paints a pretty graphic picture. Really, it's basically Dante's Inferno put up on the inside of the church for everyone to look at every mass, right? Remember why you're there. Uh, it's really disturbing because the images are quite graphic. You could probably Google some of them and be disturbed. Um, this, this is inside the Duomo. So you've got the dome and then you've got this long uh, um, main sanctuary where, where everyone would gather. And of course in the Middle Ages it's standing room uh, only. But one of the things that I loved about being in this church was just, and it's typical of the churches, um, especially uh, St. Peter's, but here as well in this principal church, the Duomo in Florence, is the floor is just a mosaic of marble, marble patterns. And the intricacy and the artwork and the time that went into producing just the floor, much less anything else, um, is extraordinary. And when, you, when you're there and you just have to take this all in and realize the man hours and the artistry, uh, it's startling, it's staggering. Um, this is the cathedral in Chartres, and this is uh, the rose window there in that cathedral. And uh, this can't give you a, a sense of the scale, but it, it, it's, I mean, it's just ginormous. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, this is uh, Notre Dame, but from a less famous view. You recognize it from the front. This is um, from the back, but again, flying buttresses, right? Um, that's what those things cascading off the sides are to hold the load-bearing walls um, from falling in so that they can open up those walls and have them have light just cascading in to, to create these incredible open spaces. Um, this is the primary cathedral in Canterbury, um, a little less elaborate than some of the larger cities, but still you can see just the intricate detail and the, the size of the space is incredible. You'd think that this was in a church. This is actually um, in Paris. And it's in, believe it or not, um, a shopping mall. Um, this was um, made at the height of the Art Deco movement, so right around the 20s, teens, 20s. And I can't give you a sense of the scale of this uh, from this picture, but this too is ginormous. I mean, like, probably it's the size of the ceiling in here. I mean, like, that's how big it is. You walk into this room, and there it is, and everything is glass. Uh, that's all stained glass. Um, absolutely amazing. Um, and, and so when you think about being an artist in Paris in the 20s, and you're working on this window, you know, what's your template? What's your thought? How do you, where, what do you associate stained glass windows with if you're an artisan in Paris in the 20s? Of course, it would have to be the Catholic churches that you've spent your childhood in, the ones that you were baptized in. 
uh, the ones that you were consecrated or uh, married in. So the connection back to a sacred space is something that's, I think, instinctive when you, when you walk into these places. It really kind of takes your breath. But I wanted to include this in this discussion about temples and this pictorial story of, of temples because there really was a shift in the history, the Western history, when it comes to sacred architecture. So, uh, this is not a Roman temple, is it? Equal justice under law. And if you've ever seen any news conferences in front of the Supreme Court building, you know that this is it. So, what were the architects who were putting this together, trying to communicate to anyone who would wander up these steps? Something otherworldly, something solid, that justice as a principle transcends our regular existence. This is a temple to justice. It's a place in which justice, which is bigger than just the United States government, can be enshrined and, you know, in a sense, worship. But again, this gives you a sense of the scale and the size. They didn't have to make it look this way. But there's a deliberate attempt to try to associate a civic value with something transcendent, something otherworldly, something God-like. Right here, closer to home, uh, in the People's Republic of Madison, uh, is our state capital. And we have there a beautiful dome. And if you see pictures of any of the beautiful churches in Europe, and then you walk into our state capital, you think, oh, this reminds me of something. I've been in spaces that kind of feel this beautiful. So again, this, this sort of bridge from sacred architecture to something that is more civic. But again, it's designed to inspire with a sense of beauty, grandeur, and transcendence. This, of all places, is the New York Public Library. What does that tell you about the architect's view of books and learning. Again, that transcendent sense. This, Union Station, a little grimy in the 50s, looked better in the 20s, um, but Union Station as well, built and uh, with that civic-minded transcendence in mind. But again, it's becoming less ornate, but still majestic in its size, this is New York Central Station, and again, if you look at the architecture, you can get a sense about what they, they're trying to evoke, the sense of scale and size, grandeur, magnificence, beautiful. But really, these are what we would call civic temples, right? They're, they're temples dedicated to justice or government, or in this case, transportation, which really is about freedom. Um, and this, another uh, New York train station, Penn Station, which was demolished in the 1960s. What a great idea that was, right? So this is in maybe the 1915 or so, not long after it was built. But again, you see the ceilings, that reminds you of what you'd see in any um, principal Roman um, architecture um, and all these beautiful churches 
uh, that you see uh, in the principal cities of Europe. So just beautiful, ginormous scale. And then closer to home, I doubt there's anyone, well, maybe there's some of you, who spent time inside this building. This is 1911, right here in Manitowoc. It's being built. This is a civic building. But if you look at the plaster ceilings, that reminds you a little bit of some of the cathedrals that you see um, in the pictures that we've seen this morning. Does anybody know what building that was? Close. No. Post office. Lousy post office. <laughs> I don't think anyone would argue that our current post office is a definite upgrade from this, right? That's sarcasm. <laughs> I can't believe we destroyed that. <clears throat> Did you know that Manitowoc was also the beneficiary of a Carnegie Library? Did you know that? Yeah, that was it, right there. It's right across the street from Quick Trip um, on 8th Street. And then they tore it down and built a bank, right? I don't know what happened in city government in the 1950s and 60s. That's <laughs> what I guess the soldiers came back from blowing up Europe and they thought, let's not stop, right? Carnegie <laughs> Library, blow it up! Beautiful post office, blow it up! Anyway, so things that are beautiful inspire. And then this is Detroit. This is a movie house. And again, look look at look at the grandeur. What are they saying about taking you to the, the moving picture shows? Right? Something beautiful. You are going to an experience that is going to translate you somewhere else. And that is being venerated and honored. And now it's a parking garage, right? All you can see is just sort of this muted echo of the elegance that once was. And temples, whether they're civic temples, whether they're religious temples, cathedrals, when they fall into disrepair, I don't know about you, but for me, something inside just breaks. There's a heaviness inside as I look at a space that once was sacred and now has been desecrated through neglect, uh, through violence, through the decay of time and abandonment. And of course, these spaces still have a grandeur, don't they? I mean, if you were to visit these ruins and you know, tens of thousands of, of tourists visit this site uh, every year, why did they come to a burned out ruin, because there's still a majesty to it. There's still the incredible architecture that's still there. You can get a sense of the space, but it's really a shadow of what it once was. It's not what it was designed to be. Uh, the violence of the wars, World War I and World War II, that just destroy beautiful spaces all throughout Europe. Cathedrals that are abandoned, you can see the uh, Graffiti on the walls, spaces that were once used to organize worship to God and inspire because of their grandeur, now abandoned, left to rot. This is a couple pictures of a church in Detroit. Uh, this is a pretty impressive picture. It was taken earlier. This is a little bit later. Same church missing a few more stained glass windows. This beautiful, 
um, arch in the middle, um, arches going to this dome in the middle. This was such a beautiful place to be there in 1920, 1930, and to see that space would have truly been impressive. You know, Detroit in 1940 had more people than Los Angeles. Uh, in, in 1950, it had almost 2 million people. Um, Chicago only had a million more uh, at that time uh, in American history. Uh, now Detroit has just a little more than the city of Milwaukee, about 600,000 people. So there are spaces all over that have once been a grand, beautiful experience, now abandoned, decaying, wrecked. Theaters that are meant to inspire, now ravaged by time and neglect. Spaces that have been tagged by graffiti. And the time and effort that it took to tag that wall <laughs> is such a grotesque uh, contrast to the time that it took to put these beautiful arches and plaster work and relief and the windows and then the painting that went in. Um, so again, this is a desecrated space. You can see the snow that's drifted in from outside. So I'd like to look this morning at 1 Corinthians 6, and that's where we'll be spending um, some of our time this morning if, if our uh, service had a stopping point, it would be 1 Corinthians. And so I'd like to read that with you. Here the Apostle Paul, writing to a church in Corinth, says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple? A temple of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you whom, you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So here Paul is talking about a temple, and he's talking about a temple that's designed by God for the presence of the Holy Spirit, and that is you. You are that temple. Now, some might say, well, Paul, as a Jew, must have been referring to the temple in Jerusalem. I doubt it. He's writing to the Corinthians. This is a thoroughly idolatrous group. <laughs> they grew up getting dedicated to the temple of Jupiter, uh, or Janus, or Saturn, or whatever. They've been participating in the emperor cult for their whole lives. I, I doubt that Paul was talking to this Gentile audience about a temple way over in Jerusalem. No, no, no. I think he was trying to evoke their awareness of that transcendence that they experience when they walk into any of the temples that were in Corinth. And here Paul takes that and he says, that's you. You actually are supposed to, your body is designed to inspire grandeur, transcendence, the very presence of the living God. That's Paul says earlier in the same chapter, as he's talking with this church in Corinth, and he says this, All things 
are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Here he's parroting back what the Corinthians were saying in order to excuse their wanton, libertine, debaucherous, immoral lifestyle. All things are lawful for me. Why? Because I don't get to heaven by being good. I don't get to heaven by following rules. I get to heaven because I believe in the promises of God. Because I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. That I deserve to be separated from God forever. But when I believe that God's provision for me is Jesus Christ, that changes me from being lost to being a child of God. Paul taught that throughout every church that he ever visited. And he, his, the Corinthians got it so much. They were so solid on that doctrine of teaching that it's faith alone that gets me to become a child of God. That they thought, the rest doesn't matter. It's all up for grabs. I can live any way I want. And Paul says, that's true. Everything's open for you. But he says, not everything is going to help you. Not everything is going to enhance the inhabitants of the Holy Spirit. Not everything is going to bring honor and glory to God. The very one who set you apart. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Food's for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, says the Corinthians. And Paul picks up on that phrase, and he says, but, but God's going to do away with both of those, and yet your body is not for immorality, but from the, for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. So here Paul is developing this theology that our bodies, this material substance, is actually relevant to God, that God cares about the physicality of our bodies, that he cares about how we invest ourselves, what we do with our time, what we do with the food that we consume, how we manage ourselves from the standpoint of morality, in particular with sexual integrity. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. Peter also picks up the same idea that your body is a temple. He says... You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now here I might argue that Peter may indeed have the temple in Jerusalem in mind. Uh, Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Uh, and here he's talking about that holy priesthood. So my guess is that Peter had in mind that idea as well. But here, he and Paul are on the same page. The human body is designed to provide not just a housing for our spirit, but for the Holy Spirit. That we are a sacred space. And therefore, we should represent that sacredness in the choices that direct our lives. So our next blanks, we can consecrate or we can desecrate our temples. We can consecrate them or we can desecrate them. What does it mean to consecrate? It means to honor. The definition of holy is to set apart for special use, that our bodies are set apart for special use. To consecrate something means to cherish it. To consecrate something means to respect it. That it is set apart and appointed for a special work. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it, the springs of life. So how do we consecrate? We guard our hearts. Proverbs also says that a man without self-control is like a city without walls. 
or like a beautiful building that's been abandoned. That's what a person without self-control is like. What happened to those buildings, those beautiful spaces when they're abandoned? Of course, vandals move in. Things start to fall apart. The sacredness that once was has now been sullied and damaged. Can they be repaired? Sure, they can be repaired, but who has the expense set aside to do that? It takes an immense amount of effort, and yet you're worth it. You're worth it. So to get our minds right about our temple of the Holy Spirit, our body, the very first thing we have to agree with God on is that it's worth the effort, that guarding our hearts and having self-control is actually worth the effort because there is something transcendent about the human person. There is something holy about our bodies. Malachi 2.15, didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Here it is again. This is the last prophet in the Old Testament. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth, says the prophet Malachi. This is a way in which we honor the presence, the indwelling presence of God. 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. He's talking about the Olympics, those tests of uh, athletic prowess. They do it, Paul says, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That, so these athletes, they're doing all this self-controlled living. Why? To get something that won't last. We're doing the same thing. We're demonstrating self-control, self-discipline. Why are we doing that? Because God will recognize that effort when we're translated into his presence with an imperishable victory wreath. That imperishable victory wreath is not guaranteed to every child of God just because you're a child of God. It's guaranteed to those who honor the temple of God in them. It is those who agree with God that this temple is actually worth honoring, sanctifying, setting apart. 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I discipline my body, says the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, and I make it my slave. That is, I don't give my, my lusts, my intense walking papers to just do what they want in my life. No, 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 no. I pull them in. In fact, they're subordinate to me my lusts, my will, the things that I want. I exercise self-control over those things. Why? Because after I preach to others, I don't, I don't want to be disqualified. Disqualified from what? Disqualified from that imperishable wreath that you get when you are self-disciplined. There's a church, very large church, not too far from here, in, in the next state south. Preacher there who's in danger of disqualifying himself and perhaps already has because there hasn't been self-control in that preacher's life. And he's been exposed as a fraud because of his lack of honoring his body for God's purposes. 1 Timothy 4.8 For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds a promise, not only for the present life, but also for the life to come. It's worth the trouble. But we can desecrate it. 
And Paul talks a lot about the desecration of the temple. So if you wanted to go to war against this sacred space that is your body, how might you do that? Paul says here, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. He is talking specifically about sexual integrity. We live in a culture that's probably much like Corinth, where sexual immorality is, we're bathed in it. Every day, we can't watch 15 minutes of television without being bathed in immorality. In fact, we're not even sensitive to it anymore. The advertisements that flash by us on our, on our computer screens and on our phones, the things that we scroll through on Facebook or Instagram, um, we're just not even sensitive to it. But I'll tell you that our grandparents, having seen those same images, would be scandalized at the things that don't even raise eyebrows for us. That's, we're just immersed in immorality. We don't, we don't sense it. We don't see it. Isaiah said, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Desecrating our temple means giving up on managing ourselves when it comes to sexual morality and immorality. And in 1 Peter, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. So who's in you, children of, of God? Helping empower you to honor both God, self, and others. Who's at work in you? And what does fleshly lusts do? They... they attack with violence that sacred space. We saw some pictures of bombed out sacred spaces. That's what immorality does to the sacred space of the human heart. It bombs out something that is beautiful and sacred. And we are the ones who open the doors of our hearts to the influences in our lives. We are the ones who resolve to close the doors to immorality. And here, Peter says, don't just close the doors, flee. You get yourself as far away from those things as you can. He goes on to say, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish people. Act as free people. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves for God. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. Hey, I'm free to do anything I want. Peter says, don't do that. Paul says, don't do that putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes, long for pure, the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Titus talks about lusts. Paul, again in Colossians, he says the same thing. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which essentially he says to idolatry. And lastly, we commit ourselves to restore, to honor, to cherish, and to respect God's temple. My hope for us is that we would commit to restore, to honor, to cherish, and respect God's temple, our bodies. So we're talking about this at our upcoming conference on November 3rd, Redeeming Food and Body. And I think the Apostle Paul would say that, that living for God is, is not really reducible to a list of do's and don'ts. It has to, to come from a, a 
a cry of your heart to create a sacred space for the Lord. And I hope that it would come from a cry in your heart. One of the things that immorality does is it deadens the conscience. It dulls the moral responsiveness of the heart. But it can't kill it. It just quenches it. Immorality quenches the Holy Spirit. We're enjoined by the New Testament. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't pour water on the speaking ministry of that internal voice, that still small voice of the Spirit. You can. And immorality is an effective way to dull it down. What we know from so many of the surveys that are done in the North American church in particular is that in the pews, immorality is, is rampant. Uh, not just outside uh, of marriage um, bonds by violating that through infidelity, but also through the gateway um, to immorality on uh, social media, web. <coughs> that is a portal to all kinds of immorality. I have the internet in my house. I have the internet in this building. I'm not arguing that we cut off ourselves from the internet unless you can't exercise any self-control when you have access to the internet. Then perhaps we should talk about steps away from the thing that is quenching the Holy Spirit and violating with violence that inner sacred space that is designed for God to inhabit. So how do we get to a place where we're giving background to God and shutting out access to immorality? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. Of course, the cross cleansed us from our sin that was uh, the penalty phase of our sin. But we also have a friendship with Jesus. And the sin that we do from day to day gets in the way of that friendship with Jesus. And we're reminded here that having an ongoing, regular conversation with the Lord about confessing brokenness in ourselves, asking for forgiveness, leads to cleansing on an ongoing basis in our relationship with Jesus. But James says, go further. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of righteous people accomplishes a lot. So it's not just confessing to God in your prayer closet. That's safer than confessing your sins to one another. And I can take you through a whole lot more of scriptures, which unfortunately we don't have time for. So I'll take you right to where I want to end today. Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One of the beautiful symbolisms of baptism is that we are starting a new life. We're starting with a clean slate. We're starting over and every time we confess our sins to the Lord, we start over. We remember. God says, I choose not to remember. What I forgive, I forgive. Because of the cross, I don't have to punish you anymore. And because of your contrition, we're in fellowship. We're relate and we're in relationship. And what does that do for the individual? It gives you confidence, strength, integrity. It leads to blessing in your life. And I long for that for you. That that is something that you too would experience on a day-to-day -day basis. That coming to church is something that is an exuberant expression of your, a life-giving expression of your faith. And lastly, 
Uh, I want to encourage anyone who would like to either not get stuck in immorality or to get unstuck from immorality to join us for a 13-week study and uh, group uh, called Gatekeepers. And this is designed specifically for men, but stats tell us that women, um, especially in the demographic from 18 to 29, um, are um, exposed to not quite as much um, immorality through the internet, but much, much more than um, their counterparts a generation ago. Um, and so we have two ways to sign up. One is online, and there's a little QR code there should be in your bulletin. If you scan that with a phone or a QR reader, that'll take you online. You can also stop by our website, and under the counseling tab, you'll see um, a sign up for gatekeepers. That's starting the first Wednesday in November, and that is a specific way to connect with others and support one another in trying to carve out sacred space so that the Lord can be honored. It is not an easy thing to do in our culture and in our time, and it's not something that God said we should do on our own. So I want to invite you to take some um, serious steps and truly consider how can I cooperate with God in creating a sacredness around what he wants for me? How can I get to a place where there is a life-giving, life-affirming uh, space in my heart? How can I banish darkness from having a home in my heart? You can do that. The Lord invites you to do that. The Bible empowers you to do that. And the Lord gave us the church to put you with other people to help you do it so you don't have to do it alone. Let me pray for us as we um, end this morning's service and then um, I'll dismiss us all. Father, thank you this morning for the blessing of baptism, for the blessing of a, of a new life. And as we talked about the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I do pray for um, all of my brothers and sisters. Uh, I've had to carve out space in my own life, and you, Lord, know that there were many, many years that were mastered by complicity with darkness, that I made space for immorality in my own life, and that it took confession, not just before you, but before other people, in order for me to truly become free. And Lord, I long for that for those here this morning who know they too are bound by immorality, that they too are stuck with a temple that has been desecrated or abandoned or attacked. And Lord, you can make spaces new. You can make things that were destroyed absolutely vibrant again. That's the work that you know how to do. We don't know how to do that. All you tell us is to make space sacred. And so we're going to set apart those things that compromise, those things that take us away from you. And that's not something we can do all by ourselves. So Lord, my prayer for my, my brothers and my sisters here is that they'll put themselves in meaningful community that they'll risk telling someone the truth so they can get healing and help. Thank you for the new life that you give us through your son. In Jesus' name.